0: So, in fact, the, the Pharisees in Jerusalem, not converted, of course, but uh, the, as we saw this morning, most of them, but the Pharisees in Jerusalem actually had codified this practice of separating Jews from Gentiles by formally prohibiting that, formally prohibiting Jews who lived in Jerusalem from eating at the same table with Gentiles. It was, it was forbidden, according to the Pharisees. Of course, with the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus came the abolition of all of the Old Testament ceremonial laws and the various distinctions that those laws made between things that were clean and unclean, including people. Um, So... For example, uh, this is evident, uh, that that the, that the, uh, ceremonial laws passed away is evident in, in a couple of different places, which I, I'm going to take the time to, uh, read. One is in Mark chapter 7, verses 14 through 19, where we read this. Mark 7, starting verse 14. And after he, this is Jesus, called the multitude to him again, he began saying to them, listen to me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside the man which going into him can defile him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If if any man has ears to hear, let him hear. And when leaving the multitude, he entered into the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart but into his stomach and is eliminated. That's the end of Jesus' quote there. And then Mark, um, uh, by inspiration from the Holy Spirit, adds in parentheses after what Jesus just said, Thus he, Jesus Declared all foods clean, so right there the distinctions between clean and unclean foods evaporated instantaneously uh, by the words uh, by uh, by Jesus' words on that occasion. And Mark just clarified it when he wrote his gospel and included Jesus' words. So, uh, so the fact that the ceremonial laws passed away was evident there. It was also evident from the vision that God gave notice to Peter. Uh, just prior to his encounter with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. So if you turn to Acts chapter 10, starting in verse 9, reading through verse 16, we read the following. And on the next day, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. Acts 10, chapter nine uh, verse 9. Verse 10, And he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he, Peter, fell into a trance. And he beheld the sky opened, and a certain object, like a great sheet coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. And again, the voice came to him a second time, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times, and immediately the object was taken up into the sky. And by the way, this was in preparation for for. Uh, Peter recognizing that the Gentiles were no longer unclean, no longer uh, needed to become Jews in order to become clean, but could be clean just by believing in Jesus and were welcomed into the New Testament church. So it wasn't that, that was about food, but ultimately it was about people and the, and the uh, acceptability of the Gentiles and the welcome, God's welcome of the Gentiles into the church. And so both, it, it points to both things there. And as Paul makes clear in Ephesians chapter 2, further, Paul does, with Jesus' life, death, and resurrection also came the removal of all the religious barriers that therefore had divided Jews and Gentiles. He does this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16, and we might as well read these too. Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 16, Paul says, Therefore remember that formerly you meaning the Gentiles, therefore remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate separate from Christ, meaning before they were converted, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, I'm sorry, before, before the resurrection of Christ. Uh, having no hope and without God in the world. But in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off because of that uh, separation between Israel and the rest of the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity." Again, the removal of the barriers between Jews and Gentiles. Paul spoke of it there in Ephesians. Now, well-instructed, and that's the right word, well-instructed Jewish converts to Christianity, so Jewish Christians, well-instructed Jewish Christians would have been aware of these divinely instituted changes of the uh, of the removal of the barrier between Jew and Gentile, of the removal of the clean and unclean designation, ceremonial designations, um, uh, food and otherwise. Peter certainly was aware. Again, Peter saw the vision himself that I just read about in Acts 10. Uh, he was the one that God gave that vision to, and this is why Peter had no problems initially eating with Gentiles when he arrived initially in Antioch. It wasn't a... It was not an issue for him. He sat down with Gentiles and ate at the same table and shared the same food and uh, same uh, utensils and so on and so forth. And Barnabas also was aware of Jesus' abolition of the Old Testament ceremonial law uh, and of the removal of the religious dividing wall that once separated Jews and Gentiles. And how do we know this? Because uh, he too had been eating with Gentiles in Antioch prior to this incident that's described here in Galatians 2. So what happened? What happened? Well, Peter, back to verse 1, I didn't read it, but if you go back to the beginning of the chapter, uh, verse 1, Peter, I think it's verse 1, Where am I? Oh, I'm in Ephesians. That's why. I'm, that's why I'm like, why? Why can't I find it? Uh, it's, I'm in Ephesians. Yes, in verse one. Then, after an interval of fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem. Paul went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking T- uh, Titus along, and uh, also, and then explains what happened on that occasion. But he had gone up to Jerusalem, um, uh, and there, uh, uh, excuse me. Peter had gone to Antioch, rather. Let me say this again. Peter had gone to Antioch following Paul's visit to Jerusalem. So, Paul had visited Jerusalem. He'd seen Peter there. After that visit between them, Peter then goes up to Antioch after having talked with Paul. Once he gets to Antioch, he begins to eat meals with the Jewish Christians in that city, as well as the Gentile Christians, which we read of in verse 12 of our text. Well, news of this, this practice by Peter of eating with Gentile, uh, Gentile Christians, news of that practice eventually filtered back to Jerusalem through the grapevine. And when it did, it caused a scandal, especially among unbelieving Jews in Jerusalem. They heard about Peter cavorting with Gentiles up in Antioch. And because of the scandal, Peter's behavior, his eating with Gentiles in Antioch, Caused back in Jerusalem because of that scandal, the Apostle James apparently, from what we can glean here from from the what little we've, information we have, apparently the Apostle James decided to send some envoys up to Jerusalem, uh, up to Antioch rather. Um, apparently, again, to urge Peter on James' behalf to discontinue his practice of eating with Gentile believers there. Now, again, I use the word apparently twice. Uh, we can't know quite what exactly uh, Peter or, um, James knew and was how much of this was James and how much of this was uh, a misunderstanding of James by his envoys or what have you. But there, was, there it appears that James had something to do with this, uh, requesting that Peter discontinue fellowshipping with uh, Gentiles. James probably, if he indeed made this appeal to Peter through his messengers, he probably did so to save the Jewish believers, the Jewish believers in the Jerusalem church, from further embarrassment by their Jewish neighbors uh, harassing them for uh, your leader hangs out with Gentiles. And James may have been trying to spare them some abuse, verbal abuse. At any rate, sadly, these envoys from James, apparently, again, uh, well, not apparently, they did. They did more than just ask Peter to refrain from eating with Gentiles. They did that, again, perhaps on, on James' behalf. But they also did this, and this was far worse. They began teaching the Antiochian Church that circumcision was necessary for salvation. We read this in verse twelve. We read this is alluded to, I believe, in verse twelve. yeah fearing the party of the circumcision that that's kind of an allusion to it and we know from acts chapter 15 verse 1 that this was indeed uh, a major issue in Jerusalem okay uh and uh and so the fact that some people came from the Jerusalem church with that very doctrine that heretical doctrine isn't isn't particularly surprising and so they came uh, ostensibly to bring a message from Peter, but they ended up uh, from James, but ended up teaching this doctrine of salvation through circumcision, or at least included circumcision as a means by which one is uh, saved. And we can be almost certain, almost certain, that this teaching, this false teaching of theirs, in no way represented uh, the view of the apostle James. I think that's a pretty safe bet. That that the now the separation from. Gentiles, that that I'm I'm not at all sure about. Uh, But the view, the heretical gospel that was being peddled by these envoys, um, James didn't ascribe to that. Uh, And I doubt even for a brief time uh, was uh, fooled by that uh, kind of thinking. Anyway, the appeal from James' envoys to Peter eventually had its intended effect, which we read of again. Uh, Peter... uh, Peter held himself aloof from the Gentiles, started to do that, started to withdraw from them, and the rest of the Jews joined him in this hypocrisy, verse 13, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. Why was it hypocritical? Why was it hypocritical? Well, because, for Peter to act this way, Peter was being a hypocrite because he knew in his heart and he believed in his heart that the ceremonial laws of the Old Testament had been abrogated by the Lord Jesus Christ and that the barrier between Jews and Gentiles had been done away with by the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. And he believed that. He knew that. Therefore, And yet, he was acting as if he didn't believe it. He was acting in a way that was contrary to what he knew was true and what he believed in his heart. This is the definition of hypocrisy. And Peter was a flaming hypocrite on this occasion. Why did he do it? Why did he go against his conscience? Why did he violate his conscience and sin thereby in such an egregious way? Well, the answer is because he was more afraid of James' envoys or perhaps of what James himself thought of his behavior than he was, at least at the moment, of what God thought of his behavior. He was more afraid of man than of God. The Apostle Peter. And so he tossed out, uh, tossed his own doctrinal convictions out the window and violated his conscience in order to appease these Judaizers from Jerusalem. Shamefully, cowardly, cowardly. Did so. So much for the stability of the rock. Where did I put that? I didn't bring it. I was going to give you. That's all right. It's not necessary. I I had a quote, a brief quote that I was going to read from uh, Flavel, but um, but I, I failed to bring it up here. I thought I did. Nope. At any rate, this was not one of Peter's better moments. I think all uh, can attest to that. Well what are the effect what was the effect of Peter's actions on others? It certainly had an effect. I've already mentioned it. It caused other Jewish believers, uh, believers in Jesus, but Jews, in Antioch to follow Peter's bad example. and indeed even Peter's trusted colleague Barnabas was swept away by Peter's hypocrisy um, and participated in that same hypocrisy himself. And even worse yet, Peter's actions were leading others to believe because of these men who not only said, James says, don't eat with Gentiles, but were also saying, and by the way, you have to be circumcised to be converted, to be a full-blown Christian. By following, by Peter's following their lead... Um, uh, and and uh, and kind of giving in to what the, the request that was made of him, he was leading others to believe that Gentile followers of Christ who weren't living like Jews must not be true Christians, or so it would appear. Peter's actions were undermining the very gospel itself. In other words, because the gospel is uh, teaches at its central point is that one is justified by God, by faith alone, in Christ alone. Good works play absolutely no work in justifying a person in one's pardon and one's being declared righteous in the courtroom of heaven. And yet, Peter's actions were saying, oh yes, but that's not quite true. You need to be a good Jew before you can actually be a full uh, uh, Christian, a full heaven-bound Christian. So Peter's actions were, uh, had, if they were left unchecked, would have had devastating consequences to the spread of the true gospel. But of course we know that Paul didn't let that happen. We'll look more at Paul's behavior next time we're in this text. But what can we learn? What, In conclusion, what can we learn from this... Um, this very serious confrontation, um, and and more particularly of Peter's sin that led to this confrontation with Paul. Well, a couple of things, a few things. One, first of all, we need to, uh, we too, rather, are uh, guilty uh, of hypocrisy. I am, you are, whenever we do something that is inconsistent with what we say we believe uh, is morally right or religiously or biblically true. And by the way, we do that just about uh, every hour of every day because every time we sin, we go against what we believe is wrong and shouldn't be done, and yet we do it when we sin. That's hypocrisy. So, for example, we parents, we are guilty of hypocrisy whenever we lecture our children about the importance of being patient but aren't displaying patience ourselves. Uh, you children, you are guilty whenever you perhaps tell a friend uh, that you love Jesus or uh, tell somebody at church that you love Jesus but then fail to pay attention in a sermon like this. That's kind of a hypocrisy because Jesus is the one who's speaking through his text, through his word uh, and even through my words and if we love Jesus, we'll pay attention to Jesus. So it's hypocritical to say we love him and then to fall asleep or be distracted in uh, times of worship. We elders who are here, we are guilty whenever we tell people that it is important for them to avail themselves of the means of grace, God's word, prayer, um, Christian fellowship, honoring the Lord's Day, and we're guilty Uh, whenever we neglect any of those means of grace ourselves. And the list goes on and on. But you see, we need to regularly ask the Lord to give us uh, the grace that we need to act consistently in accordance with what we say we believe is right. Because we are prone to hypocrisy, all of us. All of us. It's not just Peter. Heck, Paul was a hypocrite on other occasions. Secondly, things that we can learn from Peter's sin: the fact that others, including Barnabas, intimidated, uh, in, uh, imitated rather Peter. The fact that that happened demonstrates the tremendous influence, for good or for ill, that spiritual leaders can have on those under their spiritual this is why it is so important that we elders and others, any who become elders in the future be zealous for ever greater godliness in our own lives because God's people are watching and God's people are going to and are commanded to follow our Example, 1 Peter 5.3. We are examples to the flock. And this is a principle, by the way, that is was exemplified throughout uh, Israel's monarchy. Uh, as uh, Mark Futado, my Hebrew professor, uh, regularly said, as the king went spiritually, so went the people. And you could add the priests in there, too. Uh, but certainly, as the king went, uh, generally so went the nation as a whole. Remember the Israel was a church. This is why it 's so important that we elders do everything in our power to avoid being uh, led astray um, theologically as well um, i 've strayed theologically in the past i've 've uh, told you folks about that on occasion uh, not uh, uh, not for long, but I've I've had my uh, times when I have been uh, caught up in something I read and didn't think carefully enough about it and ended up believing it and later discovered it was unbiblical. We need uh, we need to be careful. It doesn't mean we should avoid exposing ourselves to what is out there in the theological uh, blogosphere or what have you. We do. We need to be aware of what our flock might be seeing so that we can engage them and, and critique uh, uh, carefully uh, things that they might be looking at. But what it does mean is that we need to be extremely wary of embracing any teaching that is outside of the bounds of historic Christian orthodoxy and, in particular, the Westminster Standards. I see all too often men coming through the Candidates' Credentials Committee coming before us, who, and I, I understand, taking exceptions to the standards is, we need to allow for that possibility uh, very in a very limited way, but we need to allow for it, perhaps, uh, because they aren't the scriptures. Uh, so, but... I have seen men who come by, come through, who, without thinking carefully what they're saying, take exceptions to the standards. Theologically trained men. It is not, it is not good for the church uh, to wander from what uh, godly men down through Christian history have believed the scriptures teach without being very, very, very cautious about um, stepping away from anything like that. And those of you who aren't uh, leaders in this church uh, need to pray for those of us who are, that we wouldn't wander uh, theologically like uh, Peter did on this occasion. And then lastly, the last thing that you and I can and should learn from Peter's sin is what Peter did is a classic example of what can happen when we fear men more than God. Peter feared the envoys from James and perhaps his reputation back in Jerusalem more than he feared at this moment, on this occasion when he was practicing this sin, more than he feared God. He knew better and he sinned anyway because of his fear of men and his desire to um, for their good opinion of him. God's word speaks on this subject in multiple places, only one of which I will read for you, and that is Luke chapter twelve, Jesus' words starting in verse four and then verse five of Luke chapter twelve. Jesus said, And I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body, and after that have no more that they can do. But I will warn you who uh, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one, and that is God, who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear Him. Notice, don't fear those who can kill the body but can't kill the soul. Fear God. That's whom you are and I are to fear. So in conclusion, whom do you fear more? God? God? or your parents now you should you should respect your parents kids uh, you're required to do that but you're required to fear and respect God more than even your parents do we fear a um, a look of disapproval from those that we interact with in our neighborhoods or in our families more than we fear standing up for what is right. Who are you more interested in pleasing in situations like that? And do your actions support the answer that you just gave to that question? You see, we all We all stumble and fall in these areas. Uh, We all have, I'm quite confident, sinned in this way ourselves. And there's much forgiveness. There's there's, uh, ongoing forgiveness for that. And all we need to do is say, Lord, I'm sorry for fearing men more than I feared you on this occasion or that occasion. And you need to do that, by the way, if the Lord has brought something to your mind. But this... Passage reminds us we need to keep working at being only concerned about, or most concerned, I should say, about what God requires of us, rather than what others around us, uh, what our church family, what our pastors or elders say. If it if it deviates from what Scripture teaches, from what God. Wants, as set forth in Scripture, God comes first, and we all need to work at that because we're all prone to act otherwise. And only God can give us the grace to do that. And we're going to pray for that right now. Let's do that, Lord. We do pray for that grace. We do need help. We are um, weak at times. Uh, we are tempted. To uh, worry about what others think of us. And uh, we tend, we have a tendency to act like Peter did. Um, we thank you that Peter did this because it's a reminder that nobody's above acting in this manner, including your very apostles. We do pray, Lord, that you would help us in those situations where it's a choice between. Pleasing men uh, versus pleasing you. And both cannot be done at the same time. That you would give us the grace to, to please you. To choose to please you. And to do that more and more frequently in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you, and he also will bring it to pass. Amen.